Hey, we're going to be in the book of Psalms this morning, the 32nd Psalm. Please keep all these folks that we've mentioned in prayer. I mentioned in Sunday school, two pastors that we've been praying for daily for weeks now that are showing some signs of improvement, still on ventilators, still in ICU, but um, heard from both of them yesterday, so we're thankful for that. And, of course, remembering Elsie um, and prayer and the Cranes and their family as she's just uh, really uh, seems like getting closer and closer to the other side. And uh, you can imagine uh, their, you know, sorrow already thinking about the, the uh, fact that they may lose her soon, probably will. But the Bible says, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of one of his saints. Aren't you glad for that today? We thank God for it. Psalm 32, if you're able to stand, would you stand with us for the reading of the scripture today? And then we'll have prayer and get right into the message. I love this psalm, and we're going to read the entire thing. Um, so beginning in verse 1, David writes, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. We just heard a song about that. Forgiven forever. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer, Selah. I acknowledged my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin, Selah. For this shall everyone that is godly pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall not come nigh unto thee. Thou art my hiding place. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way which thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. But be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest they come near unto thee. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked, but he that trusteth in the Lord mercy shall compass him about. Be glad in the Lord. And rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. It's a good psalm, isn't it? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We pray today that as we study it together and look at some of the principles here, that, Lord, your word would work in our hearts. We want to receive it with meekness. We ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to be focused on what you have to say to us from your word. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Much of this psalm has to do with the blessing of forgiveness. That's really what I'd title the message, the blessing of forgiveness. We're going to spend most of our time on that subject. There's hardly a, a sweeter subject to us than forgiveness, isn't it? But there is another thing that David mentions that precedes forgiveness, and we're going we're to begin with that. And I'm going to call that the burden of sin. He begins in verse 1 and 2 talking about the blessedness of being forgiven, but then he, verses 3 and 4, he talks about the thing he had to be forgiven of and what it was to be needing forgiveness. David makes this very personal. If you look in our, there in verse... Um, Three, it says, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Obviously, David knew what it felt like to be a guilty sinner. He felt that. It's very personal to him. And you know anything about David? You know he has a record of uh, making mistakes. We think of him as the man after God's own heart. We think of him as the sweet psalmist of Israel. But we also have to realize that he was mortal and he made mistakes just like us. It was immorality and murder in the case of Bathsheba is well known. He numbered Israel one time, even, even against the advice of Joab, his right-hand man, and numbered Israel 70,000 men lost their lives because of that mistake. Imagine having that heavy on your heart and worrying in your mind about it. So David knew what it was to make mistakes. David knew what it was to sin. Verse 3, it tells us that there was a period of silence, you know, where David kept his sin inside of him. He says in verse 3, when I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. This was a miserable time. And you know what? Some of us can relate to that, the misery the burden of knowing we've done wrong and we haven't done what we could to make it right. David just kept this inside. He was restless. There was no rest for him. And that was directly related to his sin. Some people don't really understand this or they can't relate to it or think about this. But the weight of sin, his own personal sin, weighed heavy upon him. And... By the way, because all of us are sinners, we ought to seriously consider this subject today. You know, we, like David, may try to cover our sins, but it's like having a terminal disease within you. It just doesn't go away on its own. And so he was in this state of conviction. When we read it, when I read it, that's what I see. He had sinned. He hadn't made it right. He had kept it bottled up inside of him. And this sin was causing him great sorrow. And David knew it was because of his sin. In verse 4, he says, Day and night thy, thy hand, talking to God, for day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. So he, he, pers he, he knew that what he was experiencing emotionally and spiritually was a direct result of God's hand upon him. You know, that's not a pleasant place to be when you know that you're wrong, you know you've done wrong, and you're miserable about it, but you don't, want anything to, don't do anything to make it right. 
uh, he described this condition as being spiritually dry, that my moisture is turned into the drought of summer there in verse 4. What a, what a good reminder for us today of the sadness that can come because of sin. And he ends this, these two verses in verse 3 and 4 with the word selah. And selah is like a word for an intermission or a pause. It's, it's a suspension. In a, in a song, it's like it's a pause for the express purpose of contemplating or thinking about what you've just sung. These psalms were often poems or songs of worship. And so when he's talking about this conviction he's had, this misery he's had, this, this selah is inserted and I think it's a good thing to pause and just think about the misery that can come because of sin that's not been reconciled, sin that's not been made right, selah. May I say this about this subject? Conviction of sin, conviction about sin, feeling guilty about sin should especially be true of God's people. Now, Sometimes we expect people that are maybe not spiritually minded people to be sorry about their sin and, and really their day will come if they're exposed to the gospel and they see that they've sinned against God and there's pending judgment upon them. But really, Christians, by, above all, people who have the Spirit of God living in them, we should be very concerned about our sin. I mean, what would you say about a person who lives in sin, person who has no guilt about it. They don't seek God. They don't fear God. They neglect God. They don't obey God. They don't worship God. They don't love God. And yet, none of that really seems to bother them. What would you say about that person? And I'm not saying we ought to judge everybody based on their actions, but that really tells me they may not know the Lord. When Jesus was about to leave his disciples... He comforted them with teaching about the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, the Spirit of God had been working ever since before time. You know, He moved upon the face of the waters in creation. But, but He was going to come in a different way. He was going to come and indwell believers. He was going to come, and Jesus said this, he would be, there would be another comforter. He'll be like me, but He'll be with all of our people, with all of our believers. But He said this, when He comes, when He comes... He will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come. When he comes, he's going to make people very aware of their sin. When he comes, he's going to make people think about pending judgment. And you know what? When he comes, he comes to live within us. Christians, above all people, should be tender about sin. Because God, who lives within us, came to reprove us of sin and judgment and things to come. And so, so we, we really, this is a part of God's convicting work. And by the way, if you're sitting here today and you, you are a believer, you say, I've put my faith in Christ. He's saved me. I've been born again. And I'll tell you, when I, when I do something wrong or I think something wrong or I say something wrong, it's just like something inside me says, you've got to make it right. That's a good sign. That's a mark of a real follower of Jesus. 
When you and your wife have a disagreement, which I, we've never had one, but I've heard of those kind of things. <laughs> now, now, I've just got pricked. I need to make that right. <laughs> and we know that both of us, both of us know that we didn't respond right or we should act differently. And, and the flesh would say, well, wait on them to apologize. But something inside you says, no, you, you're you're." wrong as you can be. You know what that is? That's the Spirit of God inside of us. And David knew what it was to feel grief. It doesn't tell us exactly what the incident was here when David was writing this, but we can all relate to it. The spiritual dryness he describes, I think that's what he's talking about there, at least in my mind that's what he's talking about in verse 4. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. And sometimes we go through these periods of spiritual dryness and sometimes it's just maybe as we heard in Sunday school this morning. By the way, it's a great lesson in Sunday school. I'd encourage you to come to that 10 o'clock Bible study if at all possible. It's always an encouragement to me. But, but you know, whenever, uh, whenever we go through things and sometimes it's a test and sometimes it's a trial, but sometimes, sometimes things are not right in our life and it's not just a test or a trial, it's God showing us there's something wrong. I, matter of fact, my personal view is that God chastens us if we don't make our sin right. The Bible tells us that in Hebrews. Whom the Father loveth, he chastens and scourges every son. And he could use a lot of things to chasten us, and sometimes he does. Sometimes he uses problems and adversity and things to chasten us. But you know one of the first signs to me of indications of chastisement in my life sometimes is, is just the sense that he's not pleased. That spirit, there's something wrong spiritually. And sometimes people go through that and, you know, the song service is not quite as meaningful as it used to be. And, and you know, the preaching doesn't seem to impact me like it once did. But never associate these these conditions with the fact that there's unconfessed sin in our life. There are consequences of sin that is not dealt with. And it's very common for us to try to do what David did, and that is just to keep it quiet. Cover it up. Don't say anything about it. Maybe it'll go away. But David gave us a good example of what we should do in verse 5. If you look there, in Psalm 32, verse 5, he said, I acknowledged my sin unto thee. He's talking to God. David confessed his sin. And mine iniquity have I not hid. Now again, David's very personal. The personal pronouns. Look in verse 1 there. I acknowledged my sin and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sins you can tell David's not blaming his sin on anybody else he's taking ownership of his sin what he's done wrong what he's guilty of he felt the guilt of it and he says that in, when he says mine iniquity have I not hid I've, I've, I've not covered it up you know, there, to me, there are three aspects of sin that I see in this. The first one is the act of sin when we do something that's disobedient or wrong. The second one is the personal guilt that's associated with that sin. 
And then the third one is covering it up, the deceit, the dishonesty having to do with our sin. So he said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee. I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And then he says in the last part of verse 5, thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. It's like David seemed to find immediate peace in the fact that he knew that God had heard his cry, that God had heard his confession. And once again, in the end of verse 5, we have that word, Selah. Pause. First of all, there's a pause to think about how serious sin is, the consequences of sin. And there's a pause to think about how forgiving God is, how merciful God is. I'll tell you, that was just, I was so right with Brother Hawkins this morning in Sunday school just thinking about the goodness of God and how good God has been and the danger and, the, and really not just the danger but the fact that it's very common for us to forget how good God has been. God has been good. And of all the things he's done for us, he's forgiven us. So David spends these few verses in verses 3, 4, and 5 talking about his sin, the danger of covering it up, how it affected him in a negative way, but finally how he acknowledged it. And then that brings us back to the first verse of Psalm 32. I hope you have your Bible still open there. Because he begins on this positive note, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed. The word blessed or blessed, whichever you prefer, it, to bless means a state of happiness, a state of contentment and peace, a place of well-being, to be blessed. We think about the Beatitudes where Jesus taught there in the Sermon on the Mount. But it's to be blessed. David was extremely happy. Now verses 3, 4, and 5 described his agony about his sin. But he was a happy man about forgiveness. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiveness. He was extremely happy knowing God had forgiven him. He begins the, ver the psalm in verse 1 with this blessed is who's forgiven. And look at the last verse of the psalm. He ends in such a, really a note of exuberance and joy. He said, be glad in the Lord and rejoice, ye righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. It's okay to be happy and be saved. Amen. It's okay to be happy if you're forgiven. He was extremely happy about this. You know, one of the things I think this psalm speaks to me about is the more a person is aware of their guilt and their sin, the more they're going to appreciate the subject of forgiveness. The more a person understands what we've done, not only against others, but against God, to know that God has forgiven us. I was reminded about uh, the teaching that Jesus gave in Luke's gospel when he said two men went up to the temple to pray and one pr prayed thus with himself. This was the way the, the Pharisee prayed. This is the way the self-righteous man prayed. I thank thee that I am not as other men are. Glad I'm glad I'm not as bad as everybody else. And then another man prayed like this though. 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. Both of them had a different view about their own sin. The more a person's aware of their own sin, the more they're going to appreciate the forgiveness of God. Another time Jesus gave a similar parable about one man that was forgiven a little bit, another man was forgiven a great deal, and he said, who do you think is going to love their master the most, the one that's forgiven? And he said, I suppose the one that's been forgiven the most. And it's true, the one, the one who's forgiven the most loves the most. Now please don't miss this. That doesn't mean that you have to live a life of great immorality and gross sin in order for you to love Jesus. It means you have to know how guilty you were and what Jesus has done for you. And whether you were saved at 9 or 90, it took the same blood of Christ to wash you and cleanse you. It took the same mercy of God to take us from the kingdom of darkness and put us into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And I'm telling you today, the people who are, no, who are aware of and conscious of and think about and, and know how guilty they were and how guilty they would be before God and yet think about the great mercy of God that sent His own Son to die on a cross for us. Those people are going to be thankful to God for His forgiveness. Look at what He said in verse 2. He said, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. That word imputes an interesting word. It's, like, it's a bookkeeping word or an accounting word. It means to put something on your account. He says, blessed is the man whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. Blessed the man that in the eyes of God there's nothing wrong on your account. Isn't that an amazing thing? Amen. That when God sees us, those who are saved, those who are have trusted in Christ, those whose sins have been cleansed and washed in the blood of Christ, when God sees us, He doesn't see that all those sins that were on our account. You know what He sees? He sees that there's nothing imputed to us on our sin account. But you know what He does? What else He sees? According to the Bible, He's imputed, put on our account, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I mean, th imagine that. That's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He died for my sins, all of my sins, all of your sins, the sins of the whole world. He took all of those sins, every ungodly deed, every wicked thought, every selfish act. God took all of those sins and put all those on Jesus, took them off our camp, put them on His, and then when we get saved, He takes all of His righteousness and puts it on our account. That's a blessed place to be. That's why he says in verse 2, Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, to know that God doesn't hold anything against me. Imagine that. Nothing. What a great God we serve. And then he says in verse 2, In whose spirit there is no guile. The word guile has to do with hypocrisy, being deceitful. David knew firsthand the hypocritical world of acting like everything's okay when it's not. We just read the Bible, we see that. He was deceitful, and not just in the major things. There were other times he was deceitful. 
when he changed his image before the king to make it look like he was a madman, he, he was being deceitful. Whenever he went into the temple or the house of God and got the showbread and he was deceitful about that. I mean, David did a lot of things that were deceitful, but here he says, I've, I'm not hiding my sin. I'm confessing my sin. I'm not going to be dishonest about my sin and there's no guile in me. It's a wonderful place to be when you don't have to act like something's okay when it's not okay because you know you've been washed and cleansed and God holds nothing against you. You know, sin, and this is obvious throughout the Bible, it's clearly obvious in this passage, but sin directly affects a lot of things and primarily it affects our relationship with God. It separates us from God spiritually. And not only does it separate us from God, but it also even causes us to want to distance ourselves from God. When Adam sinned, he hid himself in the garden. Jonah ran from the presence of God. The prodigal left the father's house. When a person's heart is not in the right place, it separates us from God, but it makes us even want to distance ourselves from God. But when we confess and forsake our sin, we're made nigh. That's what the Bible says. We're close, made close to God. And there's no need for, forgive, or for hypocrisy or deceit or, or cover-up. One person wrote, free from guilt means free from guile. We don't have to try to act like everything's okay because everything is okay. And let me tell you, if everything's okay between you and God, that's a good place to be. And it's not because of our good deeds, it's because of the Christ that loved us and gave himself for us. This to me kind of represents what a clear conscience looks like. You know, the Bible describes in the book of Revelation the devil as the accuser of the brethren. We've, whether you've ever noticed it or not, we've probably all experienced where he puts these accusations in our mind. You're not good enough. You're not worthy enough. God could never use you. You'll never be accepted. You can't do it. You know, all these negative thoughts. But you know what? In reality, if you're in Christ, then God sees nothing on your account. And we can be, have a clear conscience. What a, what a relief. What a relief to know that we're pardoned. And again, if a person's never really felt the weight of sin, they can't really relate to the to the jubilance of knowing that God doesn't hold anything against you, that God has forgiven us. We're accepted. We're, we're accepted in the beloved. Like every, probably everybody in this room, I can remember when I was a, a teenager, it's been a few years ago, but I remember how you just want to do things to be accepted. You do things you may not even want to do or should, you know, you shouldn't do. And it's, but you want people to like you and accept you. And you know, there's a part of that in everybody, but the good thing is in Christ, we are accepted. He accepts us just like we are, forgiven and washed and cleansed. And David is writing about this. And there's so much in this passage that we don't really have the time to dive into, but but in verse 6, I just want to mention, he says, For this, because of this, because of God's forgiveness, everyone that is godly, pray unto thee. He's talking to God. Everyone that is godly, pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. Surely in the floods of great waters they shall 
not come nigh to thee. So he just said, you know, because we know how merciful God is, we have this confidence to come before him. You may have never experienced this, but I have when I know I've done something that I shouldn't have or thought something or maybe I've just neglected things that I know God wanted me to, whatever the case might be. And I, don't, I even feel ashamed to come before God with it. But you know what? why we can come? Because he loves us. And because we know how merciful he is and how forgiving he is. For this shall everyone that is godly, he says in verse 6, pray unto thee in a time when thou mayest be found. And then he goes on from verse 7 and following. And, he, and he, I just want to highlight a few things talking about what, how forgiveness affects us. How it changes us. Look in verse 7. He says, he says to this very God, to this very God that he would hide from, this very God that he would distance himself from, he says, thou art my hiding place. Isn't that a wonderful thing? Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. Notice he says, thou art, present tense, right now, thou art my hiding place. You're my refuge. You watch over me and care for me and take care of me and protect me. You are my hiding place. And then he talks about the future, though, in the same sentence, verse 7. Thou shalt preserve me from trouble. Thou shalt compass me about with songs of deliverance. That's future blessing, future protection. And once again, we find that word in verse 7, Selah. This grace of God that God God pardons us and God protects us and God is our hiding place and God is our refuge in time of trouble is worth just pondering, thinking about, meditating on, pausing for a moment. Now, the psalm actually takes a shift in verses 8 where now it's not David speaking, but it's God speaking. In verse 8 he says, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way thou shalt go. I will guide thee with mine eye. Now one of the things that stands out to me in this passage is, it just reminds us that when we get saved, some people have this idea, you know, you get saved, it's like a religious experience, you, you're forgiven of your sins, and you and pretty much God just leaves you here to manage on your own, but that's not true. When you get saved, God comes to live within you. When you get saved, you're a part of the family of God, and God takes responsibility for us. He's our Father. We have that kind of relationship with Him. And so He says in verse 8, or, Yeah, I will instruct thee and teach thee in the way that I should, you should go. God wants to lead us, God wants to instruct us. He teaches those who are forgiven. It's been a long time ago that I came to the Lord and knew that my sins were forgiven. That doesn't mean there haven't been times that I needed forgiveness all along the way. We all do. But God has accepted us and washed us and cleansed us and we're eternally His. But along the way, He also teaches us. He teaches the forgiven. He leads us. Look in verse 8. I will instruct thee and teach thee in the ways which thou shalt go. You could say, preacher, do you really believe that God Himself would be so actively involved in our lives that he would help us and guide us and teach us and show us the best way? Absolutely, because the Bible teaches us that. Not just in this place, but in many places. It's another reminder that God doesn't pardon us 
so that we can just go and live for our lustful desires. God pardons us that he can be with us and work in this life and give us wisdom and peace and direction for our life. And it's a blessed journey that God allows us, as we heard this morning in Sunday school, that we can look back and say, this is how God has helped me. This is the way God has seen us through. By the way, God has a plan for every one of us. Wherever you are in this stage of your life, God has a plan for you. And he wants to instruct us in the way of righteousness. But what we learn from this passage, and we learn from many passages, is this. If we have sin in our life, and we're not dealing with that sin, and confessing that sin, and really making it right with God and with others, we can't expect God to bless us and lead us and show us his best. Why would God do that? A person could be sitting here saying, man, that's wonderful. God knows everything. I'd like for God to... Show me what he wants me to do with my life, what my career should be, or maybe where I should go to school, or maybe who I should marry. And I want to tell you, God wants to help us with all those decisions, but it begins with getting our sins right, getting our sins confessed. You know, when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the Bible says that he wept. He wept over that city because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. You know what that means? He wanted to help them. He wanted to guide them and help them. You know, these are really strange times we live in and people need direction. And I'm not here to tell you today that God wants to help us. God wants to lead us. Matter of fact, look in the next verse, verse 8. He says, or the last of verse 8, he said, I will guide thee with mine eye. That's a subject that deserves a lot of attention in and of itself. But let me just say this. It's like God wants to direct us and we ought to be looking to him. We ought to be looking to him. I promise you, he's looking to us. I heard, remember many, many years ago, a preacher sent me a note. And at the, at the closing of the, of the note, it said, keep looking up because he's looking down. In other words, keep your eye on him because his eye is on you. Just like a servant looks to his master, just like a waitress or a waiter or a butler would be attentive to the one they're serving, God wants to guide us. The opposite of that is found in verse 9. Please stay with me here. Verse 9, it says, But be ye not as the horse or as the mule, which have no understanding, whose mouth must be held in with bit and bridle, lest thou come near unto me. What a difference. God wants to guide us just with a look. But he said, "Don't Don't be like a mule or a horse. When I was a kid, when I was a boy, my grandpa bought a Shetland pony, and his name was Troubles. <laughs> Tells you a lot about his behavior and his uh, character, Troubles. And he was, stu- he was stubborn. He was willful. And I was sort of mean, too. But, you know, it's a picture of stubbornness. He would try to drag you off on a fence post or try to pull you out. You know, that's just the way it was his nature. So you have to have this bridle to, so you can control what he's about to do. But God says, that's not what I want for you. That's not what God wants for us. He wants our lives to be surrendered, yielded. That's, that's, all this has to do with forgiveness. That we're surrendered to God. We're not working against God. We're not being stubborn and willful with God. We want him to lead us and guide us. And he wants to do that. You know, any parent... Will tell, would tell you they would much prefer 
just to give a command to a child or instruct a child or say, would you do this, and them just respond, than for them to be stubborn or resistant or whatever. And yet, we as parents understand that. But I want to tell you, God is the same way. God, God can get my attention in a, in a variety of ways, but he wants me to be attentive to him. What a contrast between this attentive servant and a stubborn mule. And look there in verse 10, if you would. Many, here's another great contrast. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. But he that trusteth in the Lord, mercy shall compass him about. Mercy shall surround him. Compass means just to surround us. And, what, and you know, the joys of sin are short-lived, but the blessings of mercy just surround us. And so let's just finish this psalm by looking at verse 11 again, where it says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all ye that are upright in heart. Be glad. Be glad. That's, that's not even a suggestion. It's just an emphatic statement. Blessed. He starts off saying, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. And he, said, he says in this simple instruction, be glad in the Lord. We're not, we're not going to be glad in sin. Sin makes us miserable. But gladness is found in the Lord. And the righteous, in verse 10, should be rejoicing. Rejoice you righteous, and shout for joy. You know, let me talk to you for a minute about this. You know, our joy should be demonstrated. It should be evident. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm not an advocate for everything being built on emotion. I think there's a place for emotion in our worship. There's a place for emotion in our relationship to God. But, but a feeling is not the object of our worship. Our worship is directed toward God, and we don't even know that God is present just because we feel something. We know God is present because he said he would be in our midst, and we know that's true. But having said that, as a true believer, we ought to be glad that we're saved. We ought to be glad that our sins are forgiven. We ought to be glad that God is near and that God's promises are true and he'll never leave us nor forsake us that he's our protector that he's our hiding place that he's our guide you know what the bible teaches about sin many things about sin but here's one of them sin can steal our joy and that's why david prayed the same writer prayed in psalm 51 restore unto me the joy of thy salvation you know, God's people ought to be a happy people. And I'm not talking about a carnal happiness, but it's amazing. I think uh, Pastor Weiss mentioned this in a recent sermon. You know, there are certain things we can get pretty excited about, right? But you know what we ought to get excited about? That our sins are forgiven. Jesus even said this. When Jesus, the 70 returned from their evangelistic work and Jesus was talking to them and they were so excited that they saw these miracles happen they saw these things happen and they were all excited about that and this is what Jesus said don't miss this Jesus said don't rejoice in that but rejoice that your name's written in heaven that never changes our health may change the weather may change 
Our family situation may change. Our job situation may change. But if you're saved, there's one thing that will never change. And that you're forgiven. And that God is your Father. What a great contrast we see between the sinner and this dry and sorrowful, regretful life. And the blessedness and rejoicing that comes with being forgiven. When I read this, I focus mainly on the forgiveness part, but it helps me remember the burden of sin. But also the blessedness of forgiveness. The freedom of a clear conscience. Some of you can't relate to this, but I can remember before I came to know the Lord how I had to keep things hidden. Hiding things from Mama. and You wouldn't want anybody to know you were doing this. It's not a really a pleasant life. Lying and then after you lie once, you've got to lie a second time to cover up the first lie. And before you know it, you've spun this web of dishonesty and deceit. I tell you, a clear conscience is a wonderful thing to have by the grace of God. When you think about your life today, just think about where you are spiritually. Not where you want people to think you are, but where you really are. And no matter how much we might think that the seeds that we've sown will never come up, the reality is they're going to come up. It's hard to be honest sometimes and say to someone that you love, or maybe even more importantly, say to God, God, I, I, just need to be, I just need to be honest. I know things aren't right. I remember one time I was sitting on my front porch. I was a teenager. My mom was inside, and her best friend, Bobby McKinnon, who lived up the road, was with her, and they were talking. And I'll never forget these words my mama said to Bobby. Well, I know you can't use the next word, by the way. I know Tommy would never lie. And I'm sitting there hearing these words, and you know what I know? I've been doing nothing but lying. You know, it's hard sometimes just to be honest. Gut level honest. But as long as we're silent, it's going to be that always feeling guilty, always knowing it's not right. And the best thing we can do is just say what David said. But I've acknowledged to the Lord my sin. I've confessed mine iniquity. And you know what? In that end of that very verse, David knew that somehow David knew God had hurt him and God had forgiven him. Now, you may be here today and you're not really saved. You've never been born again. I just want to tell you today, God loves you. Jesus died for you. But that doesn't mean you're saved because he loves you and died for you if you've not personally trusted him and been born again. And today, maybe that's what you need to do. Come to the Lord with a repentant heart and say, God, I, I'm tired of acting like I'm something and I'm not. Today would be a great day to have a clean slate, wouldn't it? And maybe today you're here and you say, I don't really know I'm saved. I, I know what it's like to have Christ in my life. But, but there's things you're not just really being completely honest about. I'm telling you today, you're only hurting yourself.
That may not be true. You may be hurting others, but you are hurting yourself. And God just, you know what God wants to do? God wants to forgive us and cleanse us and not impute anything against us. Wonderful place to be.